When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. through chapter 12, the first chapter of Christ's Sermon at the Temple. And how's it feel to be perfect? Not that we've arrived there yet, but now we know the trajectory and aim that we need to be headed towards. I would that ye should be perfect even as I and your Father who is in heaven is perfect. And crescendoing up the Beatitudes, turning outward so that we can salt and light the world, raising the bar or coming into the center lane of the celestial straight and narrow, allowing old things to be fulfilled as all things become new, we're on the path. But we're not done yet. As I mentioned last time, the first chapter of the Sermon at the Temple gets us to that perfection, or at least points us in the direction, perfection pending, right? The next chapter, chapter 13, is meant to help us perfect our motives, because we can be doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And this chapter helps wean us off of ourselves, the pride that often goes along with striving for perfection. And the first eight verses of chapter 13 emphasize doing things for the right reasons. And the Lord asks us to ponder the why of our service in the first eight verses of chapter 13 by putting before us the who of service. Namely, who are we doing it for? Or who do we hope will see us as we do it? He focuses on three different actions that we do frequently. Alms, or giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. I love the fact that he chooses things that are so frequently done in the church. Think about your own prayers and fasting and fast offerings that goes along with it. Elder Irene once said that if we can make small improvements in things that we do frequently, then our progress will be massive because of the repetitive nature of those activities. So if we can make small improvements to our prayer, think about that being multiplied by the number of prayers that we offer or purifying our motives behind fasting, or behind service or giving of charity. We do a lot of that as members of the church. Small improvements multiplied by much repetition leads to great progress on our part. He starts with alms, or service, or charity, in verses 1 through 4. And he says at the beginning, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that I would that ye should do alms unto the poor. But take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. So there's the why and the who. Why are you doing alms unto the poor? Is it to be seen? Then of who? Of men? You can tell that that's one of the ulterior motives for some people's charity because of how much publicity they want to go along with it. In verse 2, when he says, When ye shall do your alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as will hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Why do they do that? That they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. And in fact, it's the reward that they were looking for. They get the glory of men. All eyes turn to see the source of that trumpet blast. 
the clicking of cameras on the news broadcast. Look at all that I've done for other people. And although their contribution does indeed do so much good, the poor can be fed by the prideful as much as by the humble. But for the person themselves who is giving, and we're all asked to be givers, then why are we doing it? And who are we doing it for? That will largely determine the source of our reward for the service that we render. It's almost like the Lord is saying, you get one reward for this, and you can pick its source. Would you prefer your reward to come from heaven or come from earth? In verse 3, he says, when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Well, how do you do that? I mean, the left and right hand are connected, right? And yet, have you ever tried to separate them in some activity? You ever tried to pat your head and rub your belly at the same time? How do you do that if you're able to? In my experience, it's all about getting one of those hands to go on autopilot, to get it going, patting the head, until I don't even have to think about it anymore. And if that can just become automatic, autopilot, then I can focus on the other hand and get it to rub the belly. The one is with thought, the other is automatic. Now, I don't know how successful I am at that. But I wonder if we can train ourselves so that righteousness becomes reflexive, that giving to others is something that doesn't require a lot of thought, that the right hand is just giving and giving and giving, and the left is more occupied in other things to the point that it doesn't even recognize what this is doing, to make our service habitual. Another key, in my opinion, is just to fight the sense of pride that so often naturally arises through service to recognize it when it's happening, and to squash it. I think it was George Albert Smith that whenever he was paid a compliment, he'd kind of mutter under his breath, devil talk, devil talk, make you proud. He didn't want that devil talk sounding in his ears to make him inflate the ego. I think of that in terms of these two hands. If the right hand, which is the one doing this service, this is our covenant hand, the hand that we typically use when making covenants with God. And the left hand, well, if this one's already taken by covenants, then if this is my spiritual man, it seems my left hand is more of my natural man. And maybe that's part of it. I don't want what I am doing through my covenants, my promises to serve and consecrate. Don't let that knowledge pass to the natural man. Of course, I'm going to recognize that I'm doing these things. That's not a problem. But allowing the natural man to grab a hold of that thought and wield it like some kind of trophy. Look what I've been doing. Well, that is your trophy then, the praise of man instead of the blessings of God. You see, if we resist that worldly reward, then the reward we get will come from the other option. Verse 4, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father who seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Let God specialize in visible generosity. We don't need to. We can keep those alms in secret. There's something magnificent about anonymous service. Because like we talked about last time, about doing good for someone beyond the expectation, and that drive within us for reciprocity makes them want to increase their goodness to others as well. We'll couple that thought with the anonymity suggested here at the beginning of chapter 13. You see what happens when you combine generosity with anonymity? To put it at its coarsest, you don't know who you owe. To put it on a higher level, you want to bless all the world around you. Every person you see is a potential benefactor. I felt that on the giving end once as a little kid. 
when we did a sub for Santa and packed up a box full of things on Christmas for a family in our ward who was struggling and we left it and ding dong ditched and ran back and took off. The next fast and testimony meeting, January, I was probably, I don't know, six or seven at the time. But I remember this mother in the family getting up to bear her testimony and talk about what a blessing it was that someone, some unnamed kind soul had come and blessed her family for Christmas. I think I learned what a poker face was that day as I sat in the pew in the back and just tried to maintain total flat, don't let her know that it was us. But inside, I was beaming. I got my reward from heaven, not from earth. She didn't know who to thank. So guess who she thanked? She thanked everyone. She felt that expansion of soul, that, that multiplication of gratitude to everyone in the ward, because it could have been any one of them. I've been on the receiving end of that too. It's a little harder, because I want to know who to thank. In fact, I remember once teaching a lesson along these lines to a seminary class, and later that week, they did something incredibly kind to me, and I didn't know who did it. It was just from a seminary student. And I thought, in fact, I went to class and, and, and expressed my gratitude to every class of mine, to all the students that were there. In fact, I laughed and I said, when I taught you about anonymous service, I didn't mean for me. I'd rather know who it is. I, I want to specify, I want to direct my gratitude. Well, you got me. I can't direct it individually. Now I have to direct it universally. But do you see the multiplication of goodness that that entails? This ends up being a multiplication of loaves and fishes just as miraculous as what Jesus did at the shores of Galilee. From 5 to 15, he then shifts from service or alms, charity, towards prayer. And he says, When thou prayest, thou shalt not do as the hypocrites, for they love to pray. Not because what it does vertically, but because of what it does horizontally. They stand in the synagogues, so there's a church setting, and in the corners of the streets, that's more the public setting, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, and it's coming from the horizontal direction. Makes it seem like our prayers are answered by whomever we happen to be praying to. If we're praying to other people, they're the ones that we hope are hearing us, then they're the ones that are going to have to answer our prayer giving us what we're asking for, whether or not we admit what we're after, as opposed to praying to God, knowing that He will answer our prayers. How do we make sure our prayers are truly vertical? Verse 6, Thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father who is in secret. And again, just like with alms, thy Father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now, this doesn't require a kneel-in closet. I think he's simply suggesting to go to some place apart, spiritually, even more than physically, to close the door, to cut yourself off from outside distractions, again, spiritually, more than physically. Honestly, the times that I'm praying publicly that feel most like real prayer is when I forget that there's anyone else out there. Remember we saw that in Helaman when Nephi was on his tower? Not a tower to be seen of men, but a tower to be up above, away, apart. That was his elevated closet. And didn't even recognize that a multitude was gathering down below. Another solution to the problem in verse 7 is to avoid vain repetitions. That doesn't mean that repetition is not allowed, but vanity should be dismissed. 
Use not vain repetitions as the heathen, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. In fact, that's always what blows me away about Enos's prayer. We always talk about the length, all day and into the night. But what's more amazing to me is the depth that his soul hungered, that he raised his voice high until it reached the heavens. Again, vertical prayer, not horizontal. He's out in the woods, in the forest, hunting beasts. He doesn't care to be seen. No one's around to see him. I think our most powerful acts of worship are the ones that no one will know about but the God that we are worshiping at the time. No wonder we close our eyes to shut out the world with our prayers being seen only by him with an all-seeing eye. After all, it's not about what we're saying anyway. Verse 8, Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. It's almost like he's saying, why are you even asking God? He knows in advance. To which we might say, well, then why am I praying at all? Exactly. It's not about asking for things. Prayer is so much more than mere petition. It's not your wish list or your to-do list. Prayer is much more about relationship than it is about language. Honestly, that's one of the ways I know I'm truly connected with someone. When I can sit beside them in silence and neither one of us gets uncomfortable. You ever had those other relationships where it always feels like, I mean, those lulls in the conversation seem to last forever and it's like, oh, okay, what am I going to talk about next? Prayer shouldn't be about what am I supposed to say. It can be sitting in silence together with someone you know and with whom you want to spend time. He knows what you need. Yes, it's okay to ask for those things. It shows humility on our part, an admission that we cannot acquire those things on our own. But really what prayer is all about is the relationship. Now from 9 to 13, he will give a version of what has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. It was never meant to be the one thing we're supposed to say every time. It shouldn't become our own vain repetition. Rather, it's a pattern for us to follow. No wonder he says in verse 9, After this manner, therefore, pray ye. This manner. There's the pattern to follow. Our Father, beautiful possessive pronoun, and in the plural, Jesus is sharing his relationship with God with us. Our Father. Do you sense that you and Jesus together are approaching the Father's throne? He is our intermediary, after all. That's why, to me, the most important thing we say in our prayer is the last line, which unfortunately is the one that people rush over as they're diving for the finish line. It becomes a one-syllable word, and yet it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we are allowed to approach God's throne in the first place. So to recognize him alongside you as together the two of you approach heaven and address our Father. Did you ever have to give a public prayer when you were little and you were scared to death to do it? And so you clinged on to mom or dad asking for their support and sometimes for the exact words that you wanted them to whisper in your ears? I guess we're not supposed to grow up or grow out of that. Jesus, will you be with me as I address my Father in heaven? Will you help me know what to say? to our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, 
so much higher than we, with a view that's so much more expansive and inclusive. Thy ways are higher than my ways. Thy thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I trust you. You see things I can't see. Help me know what I should be praying for. Hallowed be thy name. Do we do that enough in our prayer? Do we hallow the name of God? Do we honor him? Is it worshipful, full of praise, or is it just full of petition? And by the way, the best way to hallow the name of God in our prayer isn't through words at all. It really is through feeling. To be still enough and quiet enough to be able to begin to feel how we feel about our Father in heaven and to offer that emotion to him, that gratitude, that love. That's what worship is. Worship is so much more than something that we do. Worship is something that we do because of something that we feel about something we believe. Put that all together in the feeling behind your prayer. Prayer is something that I'm doing because of something that I feel about God, based on the things that I believe about God. If we master that feeling in verse 9, then it is so natural to continue in verse 10 with this thought, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Of course it's easy to submit because we understand who it is that we're submitting to. We trust the perspective that only he has from his heavenly vantage point. Even before we ask for a thing, we are offering our will to him, trusting that his will is far better. You ever had those times where after the fact you said to God, thank you for not listening to me? I've had a few of those prayers. Well, to be able to offer that prayer in advance, trusting that he is a loving father, trusting that he is in heaven, trusting that he's worthy of the worship we offer him. In fact, back to verse 8, trusting that he knows not just what we're about to ask, because we might ask for the wrong things, but trusting that he knows the things we have need of. The things we have need of and the things we're asking for may in fact be two completely different things. We know what we want. We don't always know what we need, but God does. And so trusting that, again, very easy to say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In verse 11, I can't believe that people actually repeat this one. It must be without thinking. Because you see what we're asking for? Forgive us our debts. Now, stop there. And yes, that's something worth pleading for. But forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. See what we just asked for? To be treated the way we treat others. God be as forgiving to me as I am to other people. Gulp. In other words, help me be more forgiving, Father. Help me be merciful so that I might obtain mercy back to the Beatitudes. Verse 12, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that's a tricky one because it seems to suggest that, uh oh, well, might he? Might he lead me into temptation? Please don't do that. Don't put me in spiritual harm's way. Well, that's actually one that is repeated exactly from King James. And yet Joseph corrects it years later when he works on the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. He changes it to, suffer us not to be led into temptation. And that's actually caused a lot of angst among some people. Thinking, wait a minute, if the King James was wrong to the point that it needed to be corrected in the King James Version, then why is the Book of Mormon Version wrong right alongside King James? 
and they can't start freaking out over these things. Well, part of that, I think, comes from our misunderstanding of what spiritual translation really entails and Joseph Smith's process of growing up in God as a translator. Now, some scholars have pointed out that the Hebraism here is actually totally fine the way King James and the Book of Mormon presents things. That there was a sense among the ancients that anything that is being done is the will of God. So that even passive voice constructions can be put into an active voice. That the things we're hoping will happen, we can say God is causing. So in some ways the lead us not into temptation, active, really is saying the same thing as the suffer us not to be led into temptation. The idea that if it's happening at all, God could have ensured that things weren't otherwise. So as far as ancient syntax is concerned, I'm fine with the original King James. I'm fine with what we have in the Book of Mormon. But it is interesting that a few years later, when Joseph turns his attention to the King James Version and asks God for help page after page, verse after verse, please help me bring out the truths of these messages. Help me restore plain and precious parts that are lost. Help me clarify confusing passages. Well, that is kind of a confusing passage if you don't understand Hebrew syntax. So I love the fact that Joseph Smith, from an ancient text, and that other translated ancient text is content to leave it in its ancient form. But with his Joseph Smith translation, how do I make this more understandable for people? So he renders that text in a way that an English reader would not be so confused by it. Now that's one possible explanation for these differences that exist between these three versions of the King James Version of Matthew 6, the Book of Mormon Version in 3 Nephi 13, or the Joseph Smith Translation Version of Matthew 6. But I also like the chronology and just the chance of, for Joseph Smith to learn line upon line and precept upon precept. The translation of the Book of Mormon happened by revelation, the gift and power of God, and the JST happened by revelation, the gift and power of God. And if you watch Joseph Smith grow throughout time, he becomes much more flexible when it comes to the language of Scripture. It's actually fascinating to watch. We won't have time to get into all the details today. But early on in the Book of Mormon translation, for example, it seems very, this is exactly how it's supposed to be. Words appearing on the seer stone, for example, and him conveying to his scribe, this is exactly how things are supposed to be written. There's even a place in the Doctrine and Covenants where he and Oliver Cowdery almost get in, an, well, they do get into an argument over the language of a particular verse in section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And Joseph's like, how dare you question the language of this? It's exactly the way it's supposed to be. But then give it some time. Grow up in God. Progress. And what does Joseph say near the end of the Doctrine and Covenants, for example? When he quotes Malachi, and he quotes the old King James Version, even though he knows a better version was given, or a different, more correct, perhaps, version was given by the angel Moroni, he wrote it down the angel's way, that different wording in Doctrine and Covenants section 2. But by the end of the book, he's like, eh, I could give a plainer translation of this, but the one we've got from King James is good enough for me. Wow. Flexibility with God's Word. That's an interesting concept. Later, when he's in preaching a sermon in Nauvoo about the letters of Peter in the New Testament, he says that the words that the prophets wrote were only hints of what existed in the prophet's mind. That is an amazing concept to consider. What we have in Scripture are prophetic hints of revelation that came into the prophet's mind. There are times that revelation comes by dictation, but there are other times where revelation comes by depiction. 
Have you had that experience in your own revelations from heaven? There are times where it seems like actual language is coming to the mind. Other times it's more like pictures, a depiction of something, and you're trying to convey those things into actual language. That's hard to do. There are times when the Book of Mormon translation or the receipt of the Doctrine and Covenants revelations or the JST, times it seems like it is dictation. Word for word, this is exactly how it has to be. Lock it in. Other times where there is so much more flexibility and Joseph is trying to tap into those hints that existed in the prophet's mind, receiving some kind of depiction of truth and how will I put these into words. I am totally okay either way. There are things about the King James Version that speaks powerfully to me and things about even identical passages in the Joseph Smith translation where those adjustments teach me powerful truths as well. As I've said before, Scripture doesn't have to be inerrant to be inspired or inspiring, especially when Scripture is always meant to be a means to a higher and greater end. The means are these words on the page. The end is the Word of God Himself, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And so if in 1829, Joseph understands this language to be, lead us not into temptation. And then in the early 1830s, as he begins work on the Joseph Smith translation, he realizes that a clearer interpretation, rendition, translation of this language would be, suffer us not to be led into temptation. Then great. Thank you for learning in the meantime, Joseph and for clarifying things for me better later in life. You know, one of the reasons Joseph never published the JST in his lifetime was because he never felt completely finished with it. And are we ever really finished studying Scripture and trying to understand the Word and will of God? Go read the, chap the chapter heading, the section heading of section 86 of the Doctrine and Covenants, when Joseph Smith is explaining the parable of the wheat and tares. And it says that that came to him, that revelation, when he was reviewing and editing the Joseph Smith translation. So that revelation didn't come the first time he went through Scripture. Does it ever? I, I have so much marked in my Scriptures, and people sometimes look at it like, wow, I can't believe you got that much. And I always say, what you're looking at is 20 years of layers. And the first time, I only saw this insight. And the second, I got this. And the third, I marked this. And the 15th, I wrote that. And the 20th, I noticed this. It's a lifetime of growth, line upon line, precept upon precept. And so if Joseph is receiving canonized scriptural revelation, section 86, as he is reviewing and editing something that he received by revelation the first time, you know, when I was a student in college, I worked for a year on a scholarly transcription of the Joseph Smith translation. Transcription means you're supposed to take what was in the manuscripts and then convert it to more searchable text but you're not supposed to change anything. So our goal was not to come up with a finalized version of the JSD. You can already buy that from the Community of Christ, the inspired version. We were trying to reproduce on computer exactly what was on the original manuscripts themselves. So when there were things that were crossed out, we were supposed to cross them out. When things were carroted and inserted, we were supposed to put carrots and insertions. Even places where the ink was still wet so that the scribe could just lick his thumb and wipe it out and then write over it, we were supposed to figure out what was underneath the smudge. 
And so we'd zoom in and increase the contrast and, and try to understand the handwriting analysis of John Whitmer and so on, just trying to piece together so we could see how the JST came together. It was an amazing project, very tedious. As a group of three of us, kind of editorial interns, would be looking at every word and have to decide if ever there was a discrepancy. Is that an A or an E? Because it changes the word. And we'd have to look and check handwriting and see, I think it's an A. And the other, oh, I think it's an E. And then the third would be the tiebreaker. It might be an O, actually. Oh, great. Back to the drawing board. But what amazed me about that year of work on that project was seeing the process of translation, of revelation scripturally unfold. And there were times that it comes out like a Mozart masterpiece. Moses 6 and 7 are like that. I, I say Mozart masterpiece because he was famous for not having any corrections on the page. There was no need for them. It came out flawlessly the first time. And yet there are other places in the JST where you can see and sense that Joseph is wrestling with the text because he'll dictate something and they'll write it. And they'll say, no, no, that's not right. And they'll cross it out or they'll lick and, you know, lick and smudge. And then they'll write something over it. And that's still not right. And they'll cross that out and they'll write something in the margin or in the lines in between. And then they'll cross that out and then take a scrap of paper and literally pin it to the page. They were called pin notes just to have some extra space so they could keep writing corrections on it. I remember talking to one of my professors at the time saying, what do you make of this? It's this wrestling over the final language. And he reminded me of the time in the New Testament where Jesus healed the blind man in stages. One of the weirdest miracles that you can study there. Remember, he blesses the blind man and says, okay, what do you see? And he says, I see men as trees walking. And then Jesus blesses him again. And now he can see perfectly fine. Well, was Jesus having an off day? Did he get it wrong the first time? Or... Is this actually truer to life than most of his other miracles? That they happen line upon line. That we start to see things we didn't see as clearly before. But we still don't completely know what we're looking at. Well, continue to come unto God. Continue to study and pay that price. And eventually you will see things perfectly clearly. I'm probably spending too much time on this point already. I want to get back to the actual prayer that Jesus is giving us as a model. But I think the principle here applies, and we'll see it several times in this Sermon at the Mount slash Sermon at the Temple. Don't get me wrong. I am passionate about the language of Scripture. I hope you've sensed that by now. Nouns and verbs and adverbs and adjectives are intriguing to me in what principles they can teach. But it's those principles that matter. To me, even more than, well, what was the punctuation mark right in that spot? It could be this, it could be that. Ooh, can both of those teach me a lesson? Then I'll take them both. If the JST version teaches me one thing and the King James teaches me something else, can both of them teach me truths that I can apply in my life? You see, Scripture is less about the reconstruction of ancient history and more about the navigation of my own unfolding history. That's what makes it scripture, after all, instead of simply ancient literature. Anyway, sorry, not sorry for the tangent. But back to the prayer. Verse 13, For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. It's God's kingdom. He's in charge. It's God's power. He's the source. It's God's glory. He deserves all the credit. Do those feelings define our prayers? 
Now again, if you compare this to the Matthew version, we are missing the phrase, thy kingdom come, and the phrase, give us this day our daily bread. I don't know why those ones aren't here. I love those phrases. I love the lessons that they can teach us. I just need enough bread for today. Just my daily bread. That's manna from heaven, right? I don't need enough for the whole week. I'm sure you'll provide more for me again tomorrow. Thy kingdom come. I don't know why he doesn't say it here. Maybe because he's right there, the risen, resurrected Lord among them. The kingdom is in you. And I'm here to coax it out. The kingdom has come right here with you. Again, I don't know all the reasons. For that, I'm happy to invoke the flexibility with Scripture that Joseph developed later in life. Jesus is finished teaching them the manner of prayer, but having brought up forgiveness, which is obviously one of his favorite topics since he just atoned and rose from the grave, he then adds in verse 14 and 15, just almost an afterthought based on that phrase of forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 14 and 15 expands upon it. If we forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Law of the harvest. You get what you give. Again, in that statement about forgiveness, don't lose sight that he's been talking about prayer. And in this example of prayer, don't lose sight that he's trying to teach us not just the what of prayer, but the why and who. That's what the common thread is throughout chapter 13. Why are you doing this? Who are you doing it for? Just want to be seen of men? He then gives us the third illustration of that concept in verse 16 through 18. And this one's about fasting. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, we should expect this line now, they have their reward. Will it be horizontal or vertical? You see, in each instance now, are we doing this to be seen? Tough thing about fasting, it's hard to see. Almsgiving can be very visible, right? Prayer can also be very visible and audible. I can do it on the street corner, make sure everybody knows. But fasting, that's a tough one, unless I can somehow amplify the sound of my stomach growling. Well, if that's too hard to come by, I just disfigure your face. Look as hungry as you possibly can. Make sure that people know how much you're suffering. You want to have a fun time teaching this principle to kids? Ask them to do it. Ask them to look as hungry as they possibly can. You'll get a kick out of it. On the flip side, what's he asking us to do? Verse 17, the exact opposite. When thou fastest, anoint thy head. Wash thy face. Make it look like you're doing totally fine. It's almost this weird reverse hypocrisy that's anything but hypocrisy. In fact, it's called humility. If hypocrisy is not wanting people to know the bad that you're doing, then humility is not wanting people to know the good that you're doing. And I love the humility inherent here. Verse 18, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy father who is in secret, and thy father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now the lessons that the Lord wants to draw from these three examples, he's going to teach in 19 through 24. But before we go there, I do want to add one thing from the very first verse of this chapter. It's something that only comes up in the Nephite version, not in Matthew. But to me, it answers a question that I've actually had some people ask. You see, several times in this chapter, Jesus has decried hypocrisy. 
again, why are you doing this? If we're achieving perfection through chapter 12, well, why are you doing it? Is there a hypocrisy in this striving for perfection? Are you doing it to be seen of men? Or are you being perfect for the perfect reasons? Again, that's what chapter 13 is all about. But that worry about hypocrisy is real. Couple that with something Mormon says in Moroni chapter 7, that if you're doing things and not doing them for the right reasons, then it's as if you didn't do them at all. In fact, he calls it evil to do those things for the wrong reason. That's even stronger language. And I've had students over the years sometimes say, well, then should I just not do them? If I'm doing things for the wrong reasons, is that automatically hypocritical and therefore I should avoid doing the thing at all? Now, I see where they're coming from. There's logic there. But you see the problem in what they're suggesting? I'll admit, it's really easy to avoid hypocrisy when you have no standard to fall short of. That's the world's approach. Well, if here's my belief and here's my behavior, let's just eliminate the belief. We talked about this way back in the videos about Abinadi and his message, since it was the priests of Noah that wanted to push it down, squash down the jack-in-the-box, okay? If you haven't seen that lesson, I would highly encourage you to go back. I honestly think it's one of the most important. King Benjamin's messages are huge. Abinadi's messages are huge. I know that's like months ago, but they're really key. Anyway, easy way to avoid hypocrisy. If the distance between those, what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, if that distance is filled with hypocrisy, then just stop doing it. It honestly frustrates me sometimes when people accuse Latter-day Saints of being hypocrites even when they're trying valiantly to live up to the standards that we know to be set by God. Yes, there is real hypocrisy that needs to be rooted out of church members. But if you think about the, that version, I sense sometimes that those that are decrying hypocrisy have only overcome hypocrisy this way, by eliminating standard in general. So that back to the question, do I just stop doing those things when my heart isn't in them. I shouldn't fake it till I make it, right? Well, notice the phrase that's added in verse 1 of chapter 13. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I would that ye should do alms unto the poor. That's not in Matthew, just here. I want you to do it. And then he clarifies, but just make sure that you're doing it for the right reason. So again, if we have this gap, which we're going to do, Eliminate our beliefs or bring up our behaviors. Forget what we're doing or purify why we're doing it. That's what the Lord is asking for. He wants us to continue giving alms and praying and fasting. If you're doing them for the wrong reasons, don't stop doing them. Stop doing them for the wrong reasons. Change your reasons. Purify your motives. That's what this whole chapter is about. And why is that so important? Because again, Reward tends to come from only one of the two locations, heaven or earth. So make your choice. Verse 19, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, like the praise of man. Earthly treasures are where moth and rust can corrupt, where thieves can break through and steal. As opposed to the other choice, doing your good deeds secretly so that God can reward you openly. Well, those open rewards can be in heaven where moth, rust, and thieves are never a problem. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And it's the heart that the Lord is after. It's almost like the Lord knows that we focus more on treasure than on heart. 
God is the reverse. He focuses more on heart than on treasure. But if he can help us envision our treasures in a certain place, knowing that our heart will follow, then it's celestial stockpiles that we should be focused on. That's what we should have our eyes fixed upon. That's the suggestion in 22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. So where are your eyes fixed? Are they just looking around to see who's seeing you? Or are they looking up to see God? Or are they closed so that you don't see anything around you, but trust that God seeth you even in secret? You see, if you're looking at the wrong things, then you're headed in the wrong direction. 23, if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. And if the light that is in thee be darkness, then how great is that darkness? We call the eye the window to the soul, but it's not just so that the soul can peek out. It's so that light or darkness can seep in. So what are we looking at? Verse 24, make up your mind. We have to choose. Horizontal or vertical? Why are we striving for perfection? No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, of course, you can serve vertically and horizontally at the same time. That's the first and second great commandment. And they're not mutually exclusive. The question is, though, if we're trying to get two things to coexist and coincide that are at odds with one another, that's the suggestion in 24. Loving one and hating the other, this is opposition, not connection. These ones really are mutually exclusive. Love and hate, yeah, these two don't get along at all. But loving God and loving neighbor, giving alms to others, but doing them for the right reason, praying for others, but not to them, praying to God, fasting for others' welfare, but doing it with a face that only heaven knows is in pain. Those are acts of goodness and kindness and worship that couple the two great commandments together. But the motivation behind them, those can be at odds with one another. Those can be mutually exclusive. Where do you want your reward to come from? Are you serving God or are you serving mammon, which is treasure or wealth or riches, but could also simply suggest, are you serving anything else? Worst of all, is it self-serving? Then fine, you got your reward. Now from 25 to 34, the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to shift gears. Literally, he's going to shift his attention from the multitude that he's been teaching this sermon to, to the 12 disciples that he had singled out from the crowd. This is actually helpful to us because it lets us know the direct audience to whom he was giving these more difficult commands. This is for full-time ministers. He's going to teach them a few principles and make them a few promises that if we took literally in all of our circumstances, I don't know how well prepared we'd be for coming trials. So notice what he says. Verse 25, it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he looked upon the 12 whom he had chosen and said unto them, again, new audience, a much more specific one, remember the words which I have spoken. Now, one reason behind it, behold, ye are they whom I have chosen to minister unto this people. So you're going to need to remember this stuff because you're going to be teaching it. The water hasn't gotten to the end of the row yet, okay? Not every Nephite is here. So you remember it so you can preach it beyond. 
And then he picks up where the Matthew version continues. But again, to this specific audience, to these full-time ministers, he says, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Look at the birds. They're fed without farming. Look at the flowers. They're beautifully clothed, and yet they do no spinning of their own. Don't worry so much about food and raiment. The food is just to sustain life, and raiment is just to cover the body. And it's life and body that are far more important than those other things. This is more ends. Those other things are just means. Do not confuse means and ends. We saw that before last time, right? About fulfilling the law, but not destroying its purposes. Now, that's good counsel for us all. Don't confuse means and ends. It's interesting that back in verse 25, he even suggests that even those ends are inferior to the ends that I want you involved in. Because when he says at the end of 25, hey, isn't life more than meat? Isn't the body than raiment? So why are you worried so much about food and clothing? But rewind a little, and he even brings up body and life as being of lesser importance. Take no thought for your life, including the eating and drinking that goes into it. Take no thought yet for your body, including the things that you put on it. Again, it's not that those things are unimportant. It's that they shouldn't be your highest priority. You full-time ministers, building the kingdom of God is your full-time priority. And since you're doing that for me, then I will take care of those things for you, just like I do for the fowls and the flowers. We have to trust in God. No wonder he says in verse 30 that God provides all these things and will to you also if ye are not of little faith. No wonder he says in 32 that your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. No wonder he says in 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Again, I know that you need them. Those are ends and not just means. Life and body really do matter. I'm just asking you to trust me that they'll be provided for you. For the vast majority of us, we provide those things for ourselves. With, of course, the help and strength and power that God gives us. But he's not asking every church member to go out and spend your life without perserscript. We have jobs to do that. But to allow these disciples to build God's kingdom full time, that requires them to leave those other things behind and to seek first the kingdom of God. They just have to trust that other things will be taken care of. And they are. In fact, even building the kingdom itself is taken care of. They do all they can. They do their very best. But to build something that is heavenly requires heavenly help. That's what I love about verse 27, when he says, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? It's amazing what plastic surgery can seem to do. It seems like people work on just about everything they can imagine, but I haven't seen much success in the realm of height. Sure, there's high heels out there, but can you imagine trying to add one cubit to your stature? I know my basketball playing sons would love that. There are some things about providing for ourselves we can take care of, but there are other things about growth that we simply can't, and so we trust it all to God. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. So leave the increase to him. Let him grow the church one cubit. And he's doing that. 
cubit by cubit by cubit. The way he ends this chapter in 34, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. And then this strange line, Sufficient is the day unto the evil thereof. That's actually rendered much more clearly in other translations. The New American Standard Bible says, Each day has enough trouble of its own. And the contemporary English version renders it, You have enough to worry about today. It's like the whole, give us this day our daily bread. Similarly, give me just enough strength to make it through today's challenges. Just enough peace to cope with today's worries. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow's things today. I'll have a new day and a new supply of strength to deal with that. I love what Victor Hugo once said, an inspired author of Les Miserables. He wrote, have courage for the great sorrows of life and patience for the small ones. And when you have laboriously accomplished your daily task, go to sleep in peace. God is awake. Don't worry about tomorrow. Wake up in the morning and be prepared to tackle the challenges of that day. But you'll waste your present if you fixate on your future. I was always so impressed with President Monson's calm. It seemed like he was never overwhelmed with all of the world's problems. He seemed to live his life by that rule of, I'm only going to worry about the things God wants me to do today. And if that means blessing a widow, I don't have to worry about opening the doors of another nation for the preaching of the gospel. I'll move towards that on a day that that's what God wants me to do. Today, I'm going to the old folks' home. Today, I'm going to the hospital. This is so much like what Jesus says to Martha. Martha, Martha. Probably had to say it twice to get her attention. Thou art careful and troubled about many things. Just come and sit and learn. That's all I'm asking today. Tomorrow, there will be time for Martha-type activities. Don't you worry. You see, everything that he says in this passage to the, uh, his disciples, there's a contrary to each of them. So as you read these and apply them to your life as well, realize that there's a flip side, that there is a space for both Mary and Martha in the kingdom of God. And both of their skills and attributes are needed. Here he's saying, don't worry about the things of tomorrow. But that doesn't mean we just not prepare for anything. We need to become both Mary and Martha simultaneously. We just need to realize that in today's Martha-like world, we don't always make room for the Mary-like priorities that need to be put in place. Go back to that idea of adding one cubit to your stature. You can control a lot of things, food, raiment, and so on. Other things, they're just beyond your control. Understand the difference. Have the wisdom to distinguish between your work and God's. He's doing his, and all he asks is that we do ours. And throughout it all, if we prioritize his, the rest will all fall into place. Or, as has been said by modern apostles, they will fall out of our life altogether. We didn't need them. Now, if we've been doing this right, if we've perfected our actions and attributes by the end of chapter 12, and purified and perfected our motives by the end of 13, what's left? Well, the fact that there are still people back somewhere in chapter 12 or 13 themselves, and that's where chapter 14 comes in for us. It pulls us away from the propensity to judge others. We're so quick to forget that we used to be in that same position ourselves, working on our actions, attributes, and motives. 
Well, they still are. In fact, we probably still are too. So we need to learn from chapter 14 not to judge anyone, including ourselves, those areas of our life that we're still struggling. That is, not to judge those things unrighteously. That's another element where Joseph grows into an understanding. Because here at the end of chapter 14, verse 1, when he says, Judge not that ye be not judged, that's exactly what we see in King James. But a few years later, line upon line, precept upon precept, how does Joseph render that in the, in the JST? Judge not unrighteously that ye be not judged, but judge righteous judgment. We're always making judgment calls, and we always have to. In some ways, that's false doctrine to simply say, judge not that ye be not judged. That's an invitation to relativism. I mean, who am I to say what, that, that anything's right or anything's wrong? I, I don't want to judge. No wonder that needed to be corrected in the JST. In fact, to me, one of my favorite illustrations of that principle comes from the story of Solomon in the Old Testament, the most famous one, when these two mothers come with the one child that they're arguing over, and whose mother is it? And it's the wisdom of Solomon that decides, well, let's just chop the baby in half. And each of you can have a half, believing, hoping, trusting that the true mother would come to the rescue, which she did. Again, beautiful story, very famous, and it's meant to illustrate the wisdom of Solomon. But what amazes me about that story, even more than Solomon's wisdom, is I think it illustrates both parts of the judging righteous judgment and at the same time, not judging unrighteously. Because he is making a judgment call. He has to determine which mother deserves this child. And that does require righteous judgment. What about the unrighteous judgment we're supposed to avoid? Well, reread the story. And this detail never makes any of the VeggieTale versions that are out there. Who are these two women fighting over this child? They were both harlots, prostitutes, does that change the story at all? These are two prostitutes fighting over an illegitimate child. You can picture a less compassionate king going, what? Chop all three of them in half. Let's just clean up the kingdom. But no, this wise but compassionate king knows that even a woman in this condition deserves to be with a child that she loves. That even an illegitimate child deserves to be raised by his mother. I think it's one of the most beautiful depictions of judging without becoming judgmental that's available to us. And that is the principle behind that corrected phrase of judge not unrighteously, but judge righteous judgment. Judge, but don't become judgmental. Please realize within ourselves those places that need some improvement, but don't beat yourself up over them. Just make steps towards change. Now that's the message throughout chapter 14. It's all about becoming judicious, which the way I think of that word includes both the judging righteously without judging unrighteously, to be judicious. Now this is meant for everyone. Chapter 14 begins with an addition that's only in the Nephite version. It tells us that when Jesus had spoken these words to the twelve, the end of chapter 13. Then he turned again to the multitude and opens his mouth unto them again. So that taking no thought for yourself and putting all your eggs in the kingdom's basket, that was for those full-time ministers, those 12 that were set apart. But now for everyone again, don't judge unrighteously. Now verses 3 through 5, 
is about becoming judicious in offering correction. Famous phrases, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own? How on earth are you going to pull out somebody else's speck when you have a two-by-four sticking out of your face? In fact, if you think about it, not only does my beam keep me from clearly seeing the mote in your eye, but flip it around. If you saw somebody coming with a pair of tweezers and a beam in their eye offering to help assist you, would you trust them? Not at all. So part of this is your inability to help someone else, but part of it is their unwillingness to even let you try. We have to be working on ourselves. And the more we're willing to do that, the more open to assistance others will be. The order is key. Verse 5, thou hypocrite. So we got to get rid of that first. And how do we do it? By working on our own beams. First cast the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. He never denies the fact that your brother's got a mote too. He recognizes that. But you can't clearly see it, and he certainly won't let you attempt a removal until you've cast out beams from your own eye too. And again, since we often judge ourselves the most harshly, keep this principle in mind. There does seem to be a hierarchy of sin. There are some things that are so glaring, those are beams. Others that are so comparatively small, those are the motes. And yes, the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. He wants to remove even the last mote, the tiniest particle. But he'll work on the big ones first. And be content with that gradual growth, that successive change. What's the biggest thing keeping you from God right now? Then work on that. And don't worry so much about the other things. You'll get to those. But the biggest obstacle is the one that's keeping you from progressing. As soon as that one goes down, you'll be able to progress to the next biggest, and the next biggest, and the next biggest. There are moats aplenty, but work on your beams first. That'll actually give you some momentum and confidence moving forward. Verse 6 then adds, be judicious in offering truth. Offering correction was 3 through 5. Offering truth is 6. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Are we judging a person's readiness? Because sometimes if we force feed them or push things upon them that they don't yet recognize as being valuable, then no wonder they get angry. Because notice, it's not just that they trample the pearls under their feet. It's not just neutral. It's anger. There's something about pearls that I guess tick off pigs. As I thought about that, why is that the case? I assume, what are pigs looking for? Something to eat is what I would guess. Can you imagine them trying to sink their teeth into a mouthful of pearls? Yeah, I could picture that turning again and rending you. But do we sometimes force feed pearls of great price to people who are completely unready to receive them? You see, if earlier was judge not unrighteously, here it's judge righteous judgment. Be wise in what you are offering to people. The day will come where they recognize their true worth. But maybe today, they do just need to be fed. Now, this actually leads in a fascinating way into what he says next. Because from 7 through 11, the idea is to be judicious in asking and receiving. 6 was in offering truth. 7 through 11 is in asking and receiving. 
In 7, he says, ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. I love that oft-repeated promise. If you're an English speaker, he literally spells out ask. A-S-K, ask, seek, knock. Can he make it any more clear that God is open to our questions? I want to respond in abundance. But be judicious in what you're asking for and be judicious in how you judge the answers that God gives you in return. You see in verse 8 he promises, if you ask you'll receive, if you seek you'll find, if you knock it'll be opened. But then he adds an interesting insight in 9 through 11. What man is there of you, if his son ask bread, will give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? This time through actually was the first time I've ever read verse 9 through the lens of what we just saw in verse 6. Because what's the son asking for in 9? Bread. What did he get instead? A stone. Now as far as a swine is concerned, just wanting food, give me some, some mash. What's a pearl to them? Nothing but a rock to chip my teeth on. Oh, so in nine, am I the swine that God is casting pearls to? Ouch, am I on the receiving end of that principle now? When God gives me something, do I sometimes accuse him of it being worthless to me? That's not what I asked for. And if worthless is bad enough in nine, then 10 is even worse. A serpent when I wanted a fish? You see, if I'm hungry, a stone instead of bread is just worthless, but a serpent instead of a fish, that's downright harmful. And unfortunately, sometimes we accuse God of whenever we ask for something nourishing, helpful, something that we think we need, when he offers us something different from what was asked. Notice he said, you ask, you'll always be given. He didn't say, and I'll give you exactly what you asked for. No, there will always be a blessing granted. There will be a response to your petition, but it may not be exactly what you had in mind. But please do not turn my bread into stones. You see, Jesus' temptation with the adversary was to change stones into bread. The adversary reverses that for us very often. God has given us something. True bread, bread of life. Meat to eat that we know not of. And yet we sometimes look at it and go, that's not what I asked for. That's worthless, stone. That's harmful, serpent. And here the Lord is saying, now be judicious. Judge righteous judgment, but don't judge unrighteously, especially when it comes to the things that I offer you. See, that's what he clarifies in verse 11. If ye then, being evil, mortal, natural man, if you know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? I am a good father. I'm a better father than you are. I'm an all-knowing one and an all-powerful one and an all-loving one. If I gave you something different from what you asked for, please do not judge me unrighteously. I know what I'm doing. I'm giving you pearls of great price. Do not trample them under your feet. Do not turn again and rend me. No gift of mine is worthless or harmful. I'm giving you just the kind of bread that you need. God then takes the advice that he follows and encourages them to follow it also. Verse 12 is the golden rule. He says, therefore all things, so therefore, that's the connection, therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, 
do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Follow that rule in giving to others and trust that God is following that rule whenever he gives something to you. God is doing to you what he would have you do to him. And through the atonement, he is doing that to him. It's amazing that through the Savior's condescension and perfect atonement, joining us in everything along our journey, he's right beside us in every stone or serpent-like gift from God. I am giving you exactly what you need. I'm giving it to my son. Christ was willing to pass through those same things, so do not judge me harshly. When we sometimes say, oh, this is hurting me more than it's hurting you, as parents, we say that to our kids sometimes. When we push them beyond what they consider their breaking point, when we expect things of them, when we're just trying to help them grow, God is an even more wise and generous and just parent. So when he says, this is hurting me more than it's hurting you, the atonement makes that concept literal. There's a fascinating connection between the golden rule and the Garden of Gethsemane. God backs up those words in deeds. You see, there's a cheapened version of the golden rule that's just make it easy for them because you want it to be easy for you. There's a mercy that's so cheap it becomes unmerciful. Uh, Let them get away with murder so I can get away with murder. No, God is much higher in that. And so when he says, therefore, and then teaches the golden rule, connected to what he just taught about swine and pearls and bread and stones and fish and serpents, do for others the best possible thing, trusting that God is doing for you the best possible thing too. Whatever type of bread he sends your way. Verse 13 and 14, he then asks us to be judicious in the paths that we choose to follow. There are some that are easy, wide gates, broad ways, but those lead to destruction. Many there be who go in thereat, and they're probably grateful for how easy the way is. This is just the kind of hog slop I wanted you to throw into the trough, not realizing that at the end of the journey, we're not where we need to be. No wonder he starts verse 13 with, enter ye in at the straight gate. Not G-H-T, this is A-I-T. Straight meaning narrow. Verse 14, straight is the gate. Narrow is the way. That's repetition. Which leadeth to life. Few there be that find it. So don't judge unrighteously and take the easy way. Judge righteous judgment and take the path less traveled by. It will make all the difference. No wonder God, in his more judicious approach to the golden rule, does beckon us on the upward climb, not the downward slide. Verse 15 to 20, in these verses, be judicious in whom you choose to follow. False prophets or true? Sheep or merely sheep's clothing? Verse 15, beware of false prophets, which suggests there's true ones out there who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Those with sheep's clothing suggest there are actual sheep. How can we tell the difference? How can we judge righteously and avoid unrighteous judgment? 16 tells us, and 20 repeats it. 16, ye shall know them by their fruits. 20, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. 
How do they live? How do they lead? How do they love? How do they serve? Where are they on this journey through chapter 12 and 13? I am so grateful for the fruits that I have been able to see in the lives of living prophets. The chances we have to reach through the wool and recognize that down deep they are true sheep of the good shepherd. He walks us through that very clearly. Good fruit from good trees, corrupt fruit from corrupt trees. But I love what he says in verse 16. There's another insight here when he says, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? You reap what you sow. So you can tell the kind of seed it was by the kind of fruit that it produces. But there's something about the symbols that Jesus uses there. Grapes and thorns and figs and thistles. It hit me once that thorns and thistles are specifically mentioned as fruits of the fall. Yet what does Jesus do with the fall? He turns ashes to beauty. He atones for it. He'll come and make the blessings flow far as the curse was found. And that's exactly what he does. Because what are grapes symbolic of? Jesus trotting the winepress alone, staining all of his raiment, the grapes of wrath, the wine of the sacrament. Grapes are atonement. And what about figs? The withered fig tree, better yet, the parable of the fig tree, pointing to the second coming of Christ, when all that is wrong in mortality is made right in the millennium. I love seeing that symbolism in verse 16. From us, can I draw grapes out of thorns? Can I pull figs out of thistles? No. But Jesus can. He can change us. He can take the fall, thorns and thistles, and turn them through the atonement and through his promised second coming into grapes and figs. And from those new grapes and new figs, a new life, good fruit continues to flow. Now, do you get a sense of what he's been teaching us throughout this chapter? Judge not unrighteously, but judge righteous judgment. Be judicious in offering correction. Be judicious in offering truth. Be judicious in asking and receiving. Be judicious in the paths you choose to follow and in the people whom you choose to follow. Look for good fruit. Now, in all of this, as he concludes this chapter, the focus has to be on finding Christ, coming to truly know him. Remember, we're not perfect. We're perfected. We're perfect in him. And so through all this process, notice how he ends this in 21 through 23, and then confirms it all in 24 through 27. In 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Talk is cheap. And maybe you've learned the lingo along this journey, but you have to do more than just say it. He that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is a faith without works kind of a moment. This is a talk the talk versus walk the walk kind of verse. But notice he doesn't end there. Verse 22, we respond. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? You see, 22 seems to be a response to 21. I wasn't just saying, Lord, Lord. I was doing all this stuff. I was letting my light shine. I was salting the earth. I was raising the bar. I was merging into the center lane. I was doing all this stuff. I'm not just a Lord, Lord, Latter-day Saint. 
I'm a doer of the word. Okay, great. Wonderful. You've, you've passed 21 and you're on to 22. But have you reached 23? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Or as Joseph will later correct the King James Version, which reads identically, you never knew me. Now, I love both versions because a real relationship is reciprocal. It does go in both directions. I know you and you know me. And how has that happened? Because we've been journeying together this whole time. Ever since you said three chapters ago, blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me. I've been coming unto you this whole time. I know you. You know me. This is a relationship we've developed. That's the real solution to all that we've been studying to this point. If we've just been talking about it, filling up a few hours of YouTube video, and it doesn't get translated into actual action, then what a waste of time. And even with action, if that action doesn't turn into knowledge, and I'm not talking book knowledge. I'm not talking some kind of cerebral understanding of who Jesus was. I mean know him. I mean conocer instead of saber. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Relationship, familiarity, friendship, oneness. You mean to tell me you've gone through chapter 12, and 13 and 14, purifying actions, purifying attitudes, purifying motives, and purifying perspectives on everyone behind you, and you still don't know who I am? This isn't working. I don't know you. You don't know me. And yet, we could have known each other. I've been walking alongside you this whole time. Should we try again? Should we start over? Should we go back to the beginning of chapter 12? I'm game. Are you ready to do it right this time? Humble yourself, poor in spirit, come unto me. Wise or foolish, rock or sand. That's how he ends this. Whoso heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, doeth them with an eye to knowing Christ, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock, and not just a rock, but the rock, the rock of our Redeemer, the rock of heaven. Build on that, and Helaman was right when he promised that no shafts in the whirlwind would have any effect. 25, the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, shafts and all, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Sure beats the alternative. Those that hear these sayings of mine and doeth them not, those shall be likened to a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The house might be equally well constructed both times. It just wasn't connected to the bedrock. In 27, the rain descends, the floods come, the winds blow. Same outside elements. They beat upon that house and this one falls and great was the fall of it. Sounds like it was quite the house that was on top. One deserving of good construction. 
Again, it's the foundation, the connection between everything that went above to what it lies upon below that was lacking. How's your foundation? And how deeply have you drilled into it so that all of this superstructure, everything you've been working on through chapter 12 and 13 and 14, each one its own story above ground, but is it founded? Is it sunk into stone? Is it built upon bedrock? Have you come to know Jesus? As the psalmist wrote, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. He is the master builder, and he's the rock upon which it's meant to be built. He is the cornerstone in this foundation of prophets and apostles. And here he has laid it all out for us. I pray that we can build our lives on that kind of a rock, the rains and the winds and the floods are coming at us all. In fact, maybe some of that's a good thing, as it tends to wash away sand and hopefully expose the bedrock that lies beneath it. I remember someone that I love very much hitting rock bottom and realizing in that moment what a perfect place it was for her to be because all the sand in her life had been washed and blown away. You sense the beauty of hitting rock bottom, of finally being back in contact with the rock that has always been beneath you, bearing you up. No need to have the wind and the floods wash away our sand if we are willing to drill down to bedrock ourselves. That's true wisdom. And as Jacob once said, Oh, be wise. What can I say more?